Father, now we do want to come and adore you. We want to sing with the heavenly hosts above of your love and your kindness, your grace to us. Uh, It takes all the heavenly hosts to sing your praises. And with this orchestra and choir, we've uh, done the best we can with what we have, but we're longing for every language and tribe and tongue and nation. We're longing to hear of all the uh, cherubim and seraphim. We're longing to see uh, Christ, you fully and finally exalted. And we lift you up this hour. Now convict us where you need to. Encourage us where you need to. Remind us of the riches and the mercy in Christ, we pray in your name. Amen. Uh, if you would, oblige me just for a second. Some of you came in late just like I did. Um, I know these things, though, and you might not. Turn to the back of your order of worship, and uh, let's just look at what's happening this next week. Uh, tonight, we have Cookies and Carols at 6.30 in the Fellowship Hall. Uh, we come together, we sing a lot, we give a lot of prizes out for uh, cookies. You bring cookies, we judge them. <laughs> you, you bring us your best stuff, and we judge them and tell you whether you're good or not. Uh, then Christmas uh, Eve candlelight service. Uh, just notice the times there, 4.30 in the sanctuary, 4.45 in the fellowship hall. 6.30 again in the sanctuary, kind of different services, uh, candlelights for each one. The church uh, apparently is going to buy me a Segway so I can get quicker from the sanctuary to the fellowship hall because I was like 15 minutes late last year. Sunday morning, uh, two services, 9.45 and 11, and then the same thing on January 1st, two services, 9.45 and 11, just no, no Sunday school, no kids' church during that. Uh, what didn't make the cut in here is that if you've been doing Journey Through Scripture with us, uh, we're going to celebrate that 930 on December 31st, if you want to come to the church at 9.30 on December 31st, we, we're going to read together the last four um, chapters of Revelation. Uh, we've been kind of journeying through Scripture, and it's kind of a way to get together. We're going to sing a couple songs, read Scripture. It shouldn't be more than 40 minutes, I would think, and uh, just celebrate and read the last four chapters together the last day of the year. Now, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness Towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Over this Advent season, uh, we've been talking about the concept of gifts because we give and we receive gifts over Advent. And as we're kind of reading through these final chapters of Scripture, that's the way we can kind of encapsulize reading through the Scripture. Last week, we talked about the gift of the gospel. We unpacked that a little bit. Today, we're talking about the gift of faith. Next week, we're going to talk at Christmas Eve, we're going to talk about uh, the gift of the Magi, the three wise men. Uh, Sunday morning, Christmas Day, we're going to talk about the gift God gives us for life, uh, the sustaining gifts that he gives us. But today, in particular, we're talking about faith, that faith is this gift that God gives us. And as soon as I say faith, you probably have certain concepts in your mind of what faith is. On one side, I've had so many people tell me over the years, Andy, I just wish I had faith like you. I wish I could believe like you believe. And what I've found is they typically view faith as this almost irrational leap where you just are able to just jump off without even thinking of it. I don't have that kind of faith is what I tell them. I remember to this day standing on the rail of Buster Boy Bridge in Charlotte about 70 or 80 feet, and uh, we were up there to jump off the bridge, a bunch of high school students, and I was just scared to death. I mean, that's way too high to jump off anything without a parachute. And I was so scared, and this redneck came up right beside me. There's no other way to describe him. Uh, That's what he was. I tatted up, smoking an unfiltered Marlboro, uh, mullet, you know, looks like he just rolled out of bed, and he looked at me, and he said, are you going to jump? And I said, I haven't decided yet. I don't know. I don't know if I can get the faith to do this. And he said, well, I am. He took a long draw from his cigarette, flicked it off, took like three steps back, and then ran and just jumped off and did like a couple flips in the process. And I'm still there like shaking. Now it's worse. And I remember thinking, I wish I could do that. I wish I had that kind of faith to just throw myself off this bridge. Uh, I finally regrettably jumped, only from peer pressure, and regret it to this day that I jumped. On the other side, we think faith's not that like irrational leap. We think faith is something that we will apply if there's good reason to. On the other hand, I've had people tell me, Andy, I'll believe in faith if God would give me uh, this airtight argument, if he'd give me a perfect argument, if God could convince me, if you could convince me, then I'll believe. Or as uh, Bertrand Russell said, if God gives me enough evidence, then I'll believe. I have faith. I believe in gravity. I believe in all these other things by faith. And so if God just gave me this perfect argument, then I would believe. But here's what Christianity does. It's something different than both of those. Faith, pisteos, uh, actually means this, to trust, to give credence to, to be convinced of, to have confidence in. In other words, faith is not God giving you this perfect argument. Faith is God giving you a perfect person in the incarnation. Or as Klein Snodgrass uh, said, faith is relational. It's describing reliance upon a reliable God. 
It's not just having all of the intellectual things wrapped up perfectly and tightly. And on the other side, it's not just leaping uh, irrationally into the abyss. No, faith is reliance upon a reliable God. And when we come to this story of the incarnation and God coming into this world, we start to see that what faith is, is this gift where after all of the Old Testament reading that we've done, historical documents that said for, year, for centuries, for hundreds, they said, look, this Messiah is going to come. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to come from the tribe of Judah. He's going to come, be born in Bethlehem. He's going to be from Nazareth. He's going to be uh, from a virgin birth. He's going to do all. And then it happened just like they said it would, just like Isaiah said it would, just like Micah said it would, just like Amos said it would historically removed from the incarnation in time and space with that prophecy that he would come and that he would die, and he did. So it's faith, a relational faith, on a reliable God. It's a reliable belief upon a reliable God. And it's this beautiful gift that we see. Now there's three points. The first one is we need faith to see our sin. And here's why. Because we're always tempted to say in this world, I didn't know it was that bad. I mean, I just can't believe, Andy, I just can't believe this world is like you say it is. I don't think I'm that bad. I feel like I'm a pretty good person. Look at all the good people out there doing all these great things. I mean, Andy, just chill out a little bit and watch a Hallmark movie, would you? There's a ton of them on. Just everything ends with this great story. I don't think it's as bad as Scripture defines it. Oh, friends. If we had faith to see our sin, if you go back to verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. So many of us have been in hospital rooms, maybe not, but I've been in plenty of hospital rooms where people will say to me, Andy, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And for Christianity, it's worse than that. Christianity says, you're actually already dead. You're already dead in your sins, in your transpresses. You're already in this place where you can't revive yourself. And all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put you back together again. And it gets even worse than that. In verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, we live in this sinful world where there are things at play that we don't see, the prince of the power of the air, walking in disobedience. That's the world in which we live in, and it's not a safe world. Uh, My dad, two World Cup stories today. This is the first of two World Cup stories. That's four. Two World Cup stories. Uh, And the two World Cup stories, um, the first one is this. My dad, I don't think I've told this one. My dad was on business in Milan, and... uh, he was about to go out of the uh, hotel to find something to eat. And when he was going out to find something to eat, the, Italy was playing France that night. He was going to watch the game somewhere. And he was walking out, and the concierge stopped him, and they said, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to go find something to eat. And they said, oh, no, no, no you're not. Uh, you're going to stay here, and we're going to comp your meal, and you'll eat with us. And he, being Scottish heritage, was like, frugal, great, sounds perfect to me, but why? And they said, Italy's playing France tonight, and if you're on the streets and Italy loses and you can't speak Italian, we cannot guarantee your safety. So you're staying here. So he did. That's the world that we live in. 
especially after sending a couple girls off to college. It's like, I feel like I'm just sending them into this environment where the prince of the power of the air rules and wins. It's a dominion of this earth, which is fallen. Sometimes if I'm honest, I feel like that after the benediction. Here we go. Out of this little safe refuge of grace and gospel kindness into the world and what's going to happen to us because it's a fallen world. And we don't want to always believe that. But we are, as it says, sons of disobedience, carrying desires of the body. I uh, speak to a lot of people that are pretty deep in sin, and one unifying phrase that people who are pretty deep in their sin will say to me is this, Andy, I just wish I could crawl out of my skin. Now, theologically, they're trying to find this theological phrase that they're by nature children of wrath, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And and they recognize the problem is me, and I can't get away from me, and I don't know how to solve that. I wish I could crawl out of my skin because by nature we're children of wrath, that everybody is depraved. This is a doctrine we talked about in Christianity called total depravity which all of us have been tainted and affected by sin. And actually, that makes Christianity one of the most unifying world religions because we're all in this together. It's not the haves and the have-nots in Christianity. It's not the enlightened and those who haven't found nirvana. No, in Christianity, we would say all of us are a part of the system. All of us are totally depraved. All of us have this issue in our lives. Andy, I didn't know it could be this bad. Oh, it is. How do I know it's this bad? It's so bad that the solution was for God to send his son to be crucified. That's how bad it is. That that was the only way out that the second person of the Trinity had to take on human flesh and allow himself to be tortured and to to die in this realm so that he could get us out. It's that bad, friends. Now, we live, sin is not only an action, but it's a state. This old formula that we have for understanding the state of the sinful world that we live in, in creation, we have the ability to not sin. There's Latin words for this, posse non peccare. But in the fall, after the fall, which is what this is describing, there's no ability not to sin or to not sin. And then redemption, which we're going to get to in verse 4, but God who's rich in mercy, who redeems us, we're in a new place. We have the ability to not sin because of the Holy Spirit. And then restoration, the new heavens and the new earth, no ability to sin. And won't that be glorious? Not just the healing from the cancer and the pain, but no more having to deal with your lust and your envy and your greed and all the things that rob us from joy. Is it this bad? Yes, it is. And sometimes that takes faith to believe. Because we cover up the stench of this world with glossy pictures and makeup and funny jokes at parties and eating too much food and just trying to avoid it all through entertainment and consumerism rather than look right at it. But that's not what we're called to do during Advent. As Fleming Rutledge said, the authentically hopeful Christmas spirit has not looked away from the darkness, but straight into it. 
The true and victorious Christmas spirit does not look away from death, but directly at it. Otherwise, the message is cheap and false. Instead of pointing to someone else's sin, we confess our own. In our sins, we have been a long time, says Isaiah 64. Advent begins in the dark. Is it that bad? Yes, it is, friends. You know how I know? Because yesterday, a number of us, let me see if I can get through this part. A number of us said goodbye uh, to Lindsay Edwards. She was 40, died from cancer. Uh, she attended here for a long time before they went with the plant, her and Jason, to uh, Grace and Peace. I have actually, I knew Lindsay since she was a teenager in Augusta. I think I met her when she was 15. And she leaves behind a, a shattered husband and four young boys the week before Christmas. My throat was so sore yesterday uh, from choking back tears and just trying not to get overwhelmed with the grief of the fallen world that we live in. And the only thing that brought me out and put me back on my feet and allowed me to preach to you this morning is this. Her funeral yesterday was combined with, after that, attending Andrew Peterson's concert, Behold the Lamb. And I choked back tears in that one, too. I usually sing during that concert, but I couldn't do it. I, was just, I just cried my way through it. But that time when they finally sing, but behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, who frees us from our greatest enemy, which is death. Hallelujah. That is Advent wrapped up together, both the darkness of this world that we feel and the light of the gospel that Christ has come to save. He has come to free us from all of his and our enemies. So some of us at this moment might just need to repent. Uh, you, you might just need to finally honestly say, not as a New Year's resolution, but as a conviction, God, I really am not following you. I really am just playing around with my sin. I've been playing the church game for a long time, but I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily trusting in you, following you by faith. I think I'm a fairly good person. I don't think it's as bad as the Bible describes. I, I think I'll get there based on my merits or my good works. You won't. So repent of that notion and come to the second point, which is we need faith to see our standing. I didn't know I was that saved. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for it's by grace you have been saved. Mercy, you don't get what you deserve. Grace, you get what you don't deserve. That's the difference between the two. And let me just say this. You're not slightly saved. You're not moderately saved. You're not partially saved. You're saved by grace and the object of your faith who is Christ. Now, theological precision is important. So let me just say it this way. You're not saved by your faith. 
That's what keeps people. They, they think, oh, I've got to have this amount of faith. And if I have this amount of faith, then I will save you. No, you're saved by grace. You're saved by the grace that Christ gives you. And the way to access that is the faith, which is a gift that he gives you to believe that that grace is sufficient for you. You're not saved by your faith. You're saved by the grace of God. And that's what Paul is so excited to tell. We're alive together with Christ. And then he takes an excursion because he's getting so worked up. He says, by grace you have been saved. He goes back to then his uh, sequence. You're raised up with him. You're seated with him that you might show this immeasurable riches of grace. And then verse 8, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith. If you've heard me talk about this before, you've heard me say in Greek, it reads beautifully. It's one long run-on sentence. Almost the transcriber can't keep up. So there's all these little things. He's like, you're together with Christ, but it's by grace you've been saved. He goes back to, but, but you're raised with him and you're seated with him in the heavenly places so that you should imagine riches, and then in the Greek, it's charite estezosos menoi, for it's by grace you have been saved. It's like Paul can't wait to get it out. You're saved by grace, not by your faith, but it's the gift of faith that allows you to believe in a reliable God with reliable reasoning through a relational incarnational Savior that he's enough how saved are you? Well, look at the with hymns. Look at the prepositions. You're made alive together with Christ. You're raised with him. And you're seated with him in the heavenly places. In other words, uh, he didn't, there wasn't a shipwreck. And he needed to throw you a life preserver and pull you in. You were dead in your sins and transgressions. And he has breathed life into you. And now because you're united with Christ eternally, you are now resurrected with him and seated with him now. To do that, God had to go on a rescue mission. So one theologian, Richard John Newhouse, says it this way. Disguise is central to God's way of dealing with us human beings. Not because God is playing games with us, but because God... The God who is beyond our knowing makes himself known in the disguise of what we can know. The Christian word word for this is revelation, and the ultimate revelation came by incarnation. God is the master of disguises in order that we might see him. And he came to show us how saved we are, that we are now united with him. I need you by faith to believe that this morning, to understand that. Second World Cup story. And let's just say this. I know the World Cup is happening uh, as we speak. Uh, And I am going from here. I have another service after this. And I'm going to lunch. And then I have a 2 o'clock meeting with some elders for probably a couple hours. Then I have a counseling appointment. And then I've got to bake some cookies. And we have cookies and carols. I might not get to watch the game until like 9.30. If any congregation member texts me the score... You will be immediately brought underneath church discipline. (laughs) We have a committee of elders who have already signed documents and have papers drawn up. We have letters written. The process will go extremely quickly. So don't talk to me. Uh, We talk to me about anything else except the World Cup. And uh, don't look at it right now on your screen. I can tell if you're watching it now. I'm watching you. But years ago, I had the same problem. 
I've told some of you this story before, so you might have heard it, but it's one of my favorite stories. Uh, Renat, I said the same thing on Sunday morning. We had a Sunday evening service, and uh, Renato Mancini, who I adore, uh, we would talk all the time about soccer. Obviously, he was Italian. He was rooting for Italy. Italy was playing France in the semifinals. I was like, Renato, don't tell me. I'll see you tonight. I walked into those doors. In the back there was Renato. This is right before the evening service. And uh, he stands up and slowly starts to unbutton her shirt. And I'm like, this is weird. That rarely happens in church. <laughs> and he's unbuttoning his shirt. And he got to here. And then he went. And it was an Italian soccer jersey underneath his clothes. I'm like, oh, Renato, I already know. And he had this huge beaming smile, like he couldn't contain it. And he told me, I didn't tell you the score. I'm like, I know. <laughs> it doesn't matter. The reality was, Italy already won. I still watched the game anyway. Because I didn't know how it played out. The reality is, you're already seated with Christ. Your name is already written on his hands. He's already captured you in his heart. And whether you believe that or not, that's true. What I'm asking is for you, through the gift of faith, to understand the reality of how saved you are. Because some of you today might feel far from the Lord. You might feel frustrated with your walk. You might feel tempted You might have engaged in some big sins this past week and you're struggling. And pastorally, here's what I would say to you. So what? You're already seated with him. You're united with him. You're raised with him. He's fully and finally saved you. Now we'll see how the game plays out. And we still got to play the game. But he's already won. And he's already won you. I don't think we believe how saved we actually are. And then lastly, faith to believe our identity. Because we're tempted to think, I didn't know it could be this good. Identity is a big issue in today's age. Uh, We all know that. So let me speak on that just for a second. This won't be a full treatment of the topic. But I did watch a school board meeting. Um, A lot of this coming out of where Elizabeth is from, Loudoun County, Virginia. I can't remember if this school board meeting was from there or not. But in the school board meeting, there was uh, somebody who um, was transgender and who uh, was wearing, cross-dressing, wearing his deceased wife's clothing and, and wanted the kids in the classroom to understand or respect that because that was uh, his or her identity. Okay, so that's going on. And you have parents uh, that were upset about that. So one lady combated that by dressing up as a cat and coming to the reading her speech from the podium, dresses as a cat, you know, the whole thing, whiskers and ears, um, and saying that because she identifies as a cat, that they must accept her catness. And you see what she's doing. I didn't watch the full argument. I'm just like, I don't want to watch this whole thing. Um, But she's trying to show the absurdity of one argument by having the same argument herself. And that's the whole, and as I said it in the first service, it just came to me by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole cat and mouse game that they were playing. Isn't that brilliant? Sometimes the Holy Spirit just says, say this. I'm like, oh, why didn't I think of that when I was preparing? So they're both playing this game. 
And I don't want to get into all the issues. I don't want to get into whether that was uh, an adequate response to the issue on the other side, whether that's a good tactic or not. But here's what I do want to say. What's happening right now in our culture, the identity issue is this. I'm going to choose to believe about me something that I know to be true, and then I'm going to tell you what that thing is I believe about me, and you must accept it. And if you don't accept that thing that I believe to be true about me, then you, therefore, are the bigot, and you, therefore, we have the problem with you, right? That's the, that's the whole game. Both of them were playing that game. That's not the game the gospel plays. So the gospel doesn't say, you figure out what's true about you and tell other people and then have them believe that truth about you. What the gospel says is this. Let God tell you who you are. Let he who is outside, because of total depravity, how could we ever trust that you would be able to adequately access who you are in your sinful state? Let God tell you who you are. And it's far better than you think it would be. Because you're God's worksmanship. He made you. He redeemed you. He created you. He sanctified you. Think about worksmanship, something that you've done that you're proud of, that you can't wait to show off. You built a building. You sealed a deal. You wrote a paper. You won a game, whatever it is, and you can't wait to show people. God says, I can't, I can't wait to show this world what I'm doing in your life because you're my worksmanship. And by my Holy Spirit, I'm going to work in such a way so that, verse 7, you could show the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness so that you could be the one that would be prepared to walk into these good works in life that, as it says in verse 10, that I have prepared for you to walk into. In other words, there's a French cooking term called mes en place, which means uh, ready in place. And in that technique, in that cooking technique, you get everything ready, everything pre-chopped, everything out there, so that whenever you need it, you can just do it so you can Cook fast by cooking slow is what they say. And what God says is this, I've prepared everything for you. It's all laid out. I have all the onions chopped, all the celery chopped. I've got all the meat seared. I've got everything ready for you. You just add kindness when you need it and love when you need it and forgiveness when you need it and grace when you need it. Everything is prepared for you to do the work of creating a life in this world where your identity shows the immeasurable riches of grace. And friends, how much do we need that? We teach our six-year-olds, just tell people, at least we taught our six-year-olds, hasn't quite taken yet. Just tell people something when it's true, helpful, or kind. And if it's not true or helpful or kind, you don't need to say it. But we need to teach 66-year-olds that and 56-year-olds that. And the beauty is that Jesus came and he told us what is true, what is helpful, and what is kind. That you're actually God's son or you're God's daughter. And he told to the bleeding woman that, one day you'll be healed. And he told Zacchaeus that you don't have to be stingy anymore. And he told the demons, you have no power here. And he told Lazarus, you're going to be raised from the grave. And he told Peter, you're more than just a pebble. You're a rock. And he told the Pharisees, your problem is your self-righteousness. But for all of those who have been reading through the scripture, 
You can see that we've been longing for this. Matter of fact, this whole sermon could be summarized this way. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. That's the first point. Till he appeared. Second point. And the soul felt its worth. Third point. Your worth is in knowing that you are God's worksmanship. And it's a beautiful thing. And you don't need me. You just take your order of worship. We've already gone through it. Lighting of the Advent candle, comfort, comfort my people. The hymn of entrance, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that mourns in lonely exile here. The call to worship, for behold, darkness shall cover the earth, Advent in the darkness. And then the hymn of joy, now to the Lord sing praises, all you within this place, and with true love and brotherhood, each other now embrace. You're now the worksmanship to go out. What child is this? This is Christ the King. So, O come, O come, ye faithful, joyful, and triumphant. And in a few short seconds, good Christian men rejoice because your God was born to save. Faith uh, to see our sin, faith to see our standing, how saved you actually are, and faith to see your new identity. So, as Johnny Erickson Tata says, on this side of eternity, Christmas is still a promise. Every December 25th marks another year that draws us closer to the fulfillment of the ages, that draws us closer to home. Heaven is about to happen. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray now by faith that you would help us to believe whichever of those three or maybe all of them that we need to believe today that our sin is worse than we thought it is, that we are more saved than we knew we could be, and that our identity means that this world is better than we thought it could be. We didn't know it could be this good, that our salvation would be safely in your hands as we're united with you and already ascended with you while the game of our lives play out We know that, Christ, you've won. And now we get to be your worksmanship. And you've actually prepared good works for us to walk into so that we could show this world the immeasurable riches of your grace. I pray um, that for this room in particular, I'm not sure why, but trust your spirit, that there are some in this room that... uh, really do have people on their hearts or minds that they need to show the immeasurable riches of grace to conversations that we would view ourselves more than a paycheck more than somebody who's just putting food on the table more than somebody who does laundry that we know the riches of the gospel and our neighbors and our co-workers desperately desperately need to know what we know So give us faith to believe these things. And then as we interact with others, give the gift of faith to them as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.